Welcome to the Work in Progress podcast, brought to you by Work Nicer. Hosted by Gabe Kane and Alex Pudisi, this show is about amazing people telling even more amazing stories. This episode is a continuation of last episode, featuring guests Sean Parker and John Laboon. So you're, you're sentenced. You are taken to jail. Tell, tell us about that. How, you know, that's a... Uh, you know, that's, that's something I hope to not experience in my life, you know, so. Don't do it. Yeah, tell me about it. Well, <laughs> yeah, so. And, and as you're doing that, one of the questions I had written down here, or Jess had written down and sent to me, uh, it just says, you mentioned uh, time getting your affairs in order and an arraignment, and so add to that, like, what is that like? How do you prioritize that time? <laughs> um, and I asked that knowing you know, I got to know you a little bit before and as that stuff was going down and so, but we never really got the chance to debrief that. And so, yeah, yeah, please, you know, along with Gabe's question. Sure. So, um, th- I'll go through the reason of, I'll do the arraignment first. And the reason I asked for it in court and coincidentally prosecution wanted it as well. They had other stuff that they hadn't quite gotten in, you know, in front of the court. <clears throat> and, um, so the judge didn't, grant it reluctantly. I did ask for a month. He granted two weeks. And the reason I was asking for that is I still had my home. I didn't own, by the way, the bank already had it, but I was residing there. And, uh, but I hadn't brought my stuff anywhere. I was not well. I just, I'd start to like pack a box and emotionally I was just a basket case. I didn't want to involve anybody else because I didn't want anybody in my world of, my evil world of sin. So I kept things quiet. I hadn't quite liquidated things. Uh, for those of you who are members of my Facebook, uh, you'll see way back when, in the lead up to that, I was selling a lot on Marketplace and and I was not kept. I was just not well. I was just surviving, like just breathing. And, um, and because of that, I couldn't just like walk away from everything and not have stuff like when I got out. So that was the reason for it. So I needed to get that in order. So that two weeks, I really hunkered down and did it as painful as it was. So the process in that is you need to give the courts a very good reason why you're requiring this because it's not, um, I wasn't lawyered up. I had friends, I had two friends that I would go to, to get some friendly counsel, uh, with an understanding of the criminal law. Because for a couple of reasons, one, I didn't have the money to do it. And there was some, um, secondly, I, all I wanted to be was to be sensitive to the protocols of the court. And that's, that's where my conversations went with my friends who were lawyers. And, um, so I wasn't wasting time and more energy because the guilt to carry more guilt over new things, I don't think I could have handled, even though I felt free freer, I don't think I could bring that on this idea of tying up the courts and the systems and the money that gets charged. And I'm thinking of victims and that means the ASC bill gets higher and all that stuff, all that sort of came to me. So, but that process, because prosecution was also needed that extra time, um, the judge granted that willingly. Um, and so when I talk about my affairs, that would be it. And including things like, you know, who's going to take care of my communicating with the outs and having brave and bold conversations with people on that. And, you know, I had to ask a friend, I said, look, you know, 
you know, as people are reaching out, can you go into, you know, my texts and emails and just respond back to them of sort of what's going on? Here's a script. So I didn't have any of that ready to go on my first day of sentencing. So, um, sentencing was very interesting. So it was on July 22nd of 2019. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Cause it's been over two years now. Anyhow, um, the, I was already warned that if a sentence is doled and I get detained, this is not about go, you know, have a good long goodbye with everybody. You're like, you got brought right out of the court and that's exactly what it was. When judgment, um, had been doled, um, I was escorted by sheriff into the back and I still have the sound of the steel door as it was closing. <laughs> and not only does it not so much haunts me, but I'll never, ever forget that sound. Like I could be on my deathbed and hear it in a hospital and it would think like, you know, well, this is it. Um, as did the people who were in the court to support me. And there are quite a few. And, um, so from there, um, I was held in a cell. Well, first of all, they, you know, you get pat down and then I was put into shackles and handcuffs and I was put and got some personal particulars, uh, for the sheriff. And then I was put in a cell for somewhere between three and four hours by myself. No one else was there. And then they said, you're on your way up to the remand center, which is here in Calgary and you will go there until your intake for an institution becomes available, like uh, a place for an institution. And I was slated for one of two institutions, either Drumheller Institution, your pop's old stomping grounds, yeah. uh, or Innisfail, which offer both medium and minimum facilities. And I knew nothing about them. Because this is something that I realized. It's really hard to find information from online about what that experience is like. Yeah. It really is. Cause there's something about in the institutions where it's the closest thing to almost like a secret society. Now you'll look up YouTube videos and people who are incarcerated in the States and they experience, let's say some of the same things or even in other institutions here in Canada from an inmate's perspective, but some things just are really hard to find about what a day in the life would be like. So I arrive, um, at the remand institution and after getting a full pat down again, um, the shackles are released. I have my handcuffs on and then they bring me into the back and then the handcuffs are removed and then put in another cell. Um, I'm put into their regalia, which is a jumpsuit. I don't remember the color. I keep thinking orange, but that's too much TV, obviously. And, uh, what I do know is there weren't zippers, there were Velcro. So you bend over and people get a show. <laughs> and, um, I was put in a cell overnight with another inmate, um, who ended up being in my last house in Drumheller as well. Also a white collar criminal. And we spent the night together and the next day he was moved into another cell. And I believe it was 12 days that I was actually at the remand center as they're preparing me. And they said, well, a, pl a uh, place has become available in Drumheller. Do you want to go? And in the meantime, while I'm in here, I thought the guys are nice. I was in a great unit, like, I guess, compared to some of the stories that I've heard. Um, and the remand center is a, is a full blown out max facility. There isn't an inch in that area where you are not under camera and they can't lock down and get control of a crowd. It can just happen in a second. We got an hour of wreck every day. 
um, to which there was a courtyard with a very high uh, walls, uh, was a basketball court. And um, for those who are practitioners of faith, for, for Christians and Muslims, they had their respective leaders that would come in as well, so you could attend things like church and stuff of that nature. Uh, there was an imam for uh, for the Muslim, and um, <clears throat> and visitors would be behind a glass. So I was there for twelve days, and but everyone was romancing this idea. Oh, you love Drumheller? It's great. They have uh, they have a big uh, walk around like four hundred meter track with a football field in the middle, and I'm thinking club fed. This is great. Far from. <laughs> And um, the food's better and things like that. I would dispute that, especially in the medium. And um, and I still didn't know, okay, do I go to max? Do I go to medium? Do I go to minimum? I didn't know at that point. And then I finally met with an intake um, PO, and they said, you go to medium for a minimum of 60 days, 60 to, um, uh, 60 to 90 days before you actually go to minimum, and there's no guarantee you'll go to minimum. So my first trip out there was a nice sunny day. The ride was brutal. So it's in a fully secure cube van, uh, no seatbelts. You're in shackles and handcuffs and you're flying around in that thing because they're just driving like bats out of hell. You get over there and you go through a whole new process of intake, getting ID, going to health, getting your apparel, getting all your stuff for your cell, like including a mattress, bedding, etc. And it was my first walk into my unit which is Unit 51, and which is arguably the worst and most ruthless gang unit in all of Canada. The alternative from an institution would have been Innisfail, and they both have sort of a profile of inmate. White-collar guys would be in both, but mostly gangs and uh, trafficking arms charges would be at Drumheller, and those, let's say, with sexual offenses would be in Innisfail. I didn't know this until I went there. But you'd still have, you know, the odd prisoner from uh, in each category in the re- the other respective um, institutions. And I get up to my unit. It's extremely hot because this is like the end of July. I get my mattress put on my bunk. The place is filthy. And a guy, a couple of guys kept in there. And they call it rubbernecking. So it's a prison term. So the idea ultimately is if you don't know the inmate and you're walking down a range, you don't poke your head in there cell and start looking around and get curious you can get into a lot of trouble for it so over a period of three four days i was threatened to be hit um a lot never did happen maybe they saw my size and (laughs) maybe thought twice about it you know but um it just didn't happen but i was threatened a lot for it and it made me very it made it was made very clear that the rules are made on the fly they're different depending on the situation and prison has its own set of rules and laws. And I'm not talking those that are legislated. But I have guys come in because as soon as I see a new inmate walking in with a mattress, word gets out and a few guys come in and see if you brought anything in. Even though there's cavity searches and x-rays and scanners and things like that. And I said, I just don't do that stuff. You know, that was the last you'd ever see of them. They'd be in, they'd be out and they'd be gone. And then one of the inmates who was across my range, uh, in the cell across my range, comes in and he goes, hey, you're good. And I go, hmm, okay. So I don't know who to trust and who I should be having conversations with. I said, uh, what do you mean by that? And he goes, well, he rattled off my entire sentence. And I go, 
holy cow, the guards are in cahoots with the prisoners. It's totally out of Hollywood. But outside of my cell is a payphone. Well, what would look like a payphone, but it's a debit credit system. But he called his girlfriend right away because all of our names are on our lapels and all of our apparel of shirts and jackets and things like that. And she asked him, he asked her to look up, you know, tell me about this guy that just got sentenced. So he knew my entire one because it was already in, you know, Bloomberg and Calgary Herald and Toronto Star and not the type of press you want. And uh, he said, because there was suspicion already when you were walking up that you were a Skinner, which is somebody usually with a sexual offense, but usually with, uh, with children. But you're good. So was very quick to note that inmates were very curious about this white-collar guy who was here because they, were, they weren't abundant. And when I was a medium, there I knew of three of us, and there were four at any given time when I was a minimum. So um, in the eyes of inmates, white-collar guys are, you know, I need to tap into this guy because that's my next hustle. That's the next thing I'm going to do. How does this guy get all that money, not have a place to put it? You know, like what has he done with it? But more importantly, how did he do it so I can get into that game? Because this drug game, I'm going to be under a microscope. So in the eyes of inmates, white collar guys are very light. Like they're not considered, um, they're not in the dirt pile. However, amongst parole officers, correction officers, anyone of authority, we are at the bottom because they or other or people within their sphere have been duped by somebody who has taken money from them. And I totally get it. And I never played it off. It was a we versus them. I got along with all the authorities while I was in the institution, with the exception of one correctional officer. I got along with them on both medium and minimum and had civil conversations, the type of conversations you can have at that level. Mm-hmm. And my dad's got some wild stories. I was, you know, he spent a career in correctional services, at, you know, at, at, at a lot of levels. But yeah, he, same thing. He said bank robbers are kind of the top of the food chain in there, and uh, you know, your pedophiles are at the bottom, and they need to watch out. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, he he had all kinds of stories about gang fights, and um, you know these. Quebec gangs versus Ontario gangs and you know, all it, it can get wild in there. Right. So yeah. I mean, did, did you witness any of that? Did you witness violence in, inside? Yeah, I did. Um, <clears throat> during my two months and a day, I called it 61 days in medium. Not that I was counting, but I had a paper written calendar checking them off, <laughs> you know, of when my eligibility was to possibly go to minimum. We had a lockdown. I think it was there three, four days, and it was a murder. It was an inmate murder, two rival gangs, and uh, they took the life of one. There was a second one during my time in medium, or just after I got out. I can't remember. It was one or two days after that lockdown. I was sitting in a rec area called the G unit, and this is a common area where inmates within your unit could go and watch TV, play cards, um, you know, social kibitz. And, um, I was sitting down at the table. There were two other guys at my table and then another, a gang member came up and started talking to one of them. And the guy who was to my right, uh, poor soul, he was really taking a lot of verbal abuse from him. He was kind of poking fun at first and it just got a little heavier and heavier to the point where he just started punching him and then brought him to the ground and just started kicking him, like going to town with his boots so hard. So that purple blood was coming out of his head. So that means you're on your way to dying. Like he was knocked unconscious. 
when that when he got onto the ground, I jumped up and I said, "Guys, stop!" Like I didn't touch anybody or anything, but that's all I said, and that was a big sin in the eyes of the um, in the eyes of the prisoners. So as soon as that happened, we had I think like a half day lockdown. That guy ended up surviving, barely. I had members from both gangs come up to me and say, by the way, that was stupid. You're in a lot of trouble. So I found one person that I trusted amongst one of those gangs. And I said, so what's going to happen? And he goes, well, the best case scenario is they have what's called the minute. So two or three guys walk to your cell. One stands in the door because even though they have a scheduled rotation of correction officers walking down your range, just to make sure nobody comes in and gets curious. And the one or two come into your cell, they sit on your bed very calmly, and you're doled out a sentence. You're supposed to sit on your hands for a minute and let them kick the shit out of you. So in a former life as a bouncer in a nightclub, fights lasted, you know, eight to 10 seconds tops, tops. Because one, you're exhausted. <laughs> two, it's like, okay, I bit off more than I could chew. Somebody gives in. And so I thought for a minute, I said, this is not going to be good. This is no bueno. So... There was very few people I could trust. And for those that I had actually had connections with, one, another white collar guy and somebody who was just like wrong place, wrong time guy, I was reluctant to go and chat with them about it because then they get implicated, right? Or they get brought into that mix. It's one of those gifts of a past, you know, of being able to like, and I went to one of the gang leaders. He was second in command in one of the gangs and uh, we had a conversation around it. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. So he came into my cell and he goes, I've got a little debt. I need you to take care of it. And then you're going to be okay. As far as our gang goes. So it was a little over $26. He had borrowed some chips, maybe bought some tobacco, some contraband. And he owed somebody for that money. And it's usually you pay every second week. And if you don't, you're into a little bit of trouble. Now he's the type of guy who would not get punched out by somebody, but his gang would be really pissed off the fact that he was taking on debt. So I took care of that for him. And so I got a little protection on that side or they toned it down. And then I thought it was groovy until the largest human being walked into my cell from the other gang. He had just been released from maximum. He'd been in maximum for a long time. He's a lifer. And uh, he was just released into medium for whatever reason. And he sits on the end of my bed and he's not saying too much. And he's just asking about things. I've got, you know, a picture of my daughter and all this stuff in, in my cell. And he goes, I want that. And it was my calendar that I was marking off my 61 days, my 60 days or 90 days. And instead of just giving it, I'm like, yeah, you can have it. You can have it. I just said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to make you your own custom one. And it's going to be brilliant. It'll make mine look like just pieces of paper. So he goes, yeah, okay, I want it by tomorrow. So he leaves the cell and I tell you, I've never drawn up something so quickly in my entire life. And I made him this and made it look like this is tough guy's calendar. This is gauges, don't touch, touch or die or something like that. Almost like a little bit of as tattoo art as I could do to make it as nice as possible. And he thought it was the greatest gift ever. And he he kind of had my back the entire time after that. And so when I said the best case scenario was the minute, the worst case scenario, and they said it's likely because there was a lot of gang rivalry, well, there was gang rivalry between the two main gangs, is that I'd probably get some metal. 
there were a lot of um, bed slats and things like that made into knives and you know got to take one for the other and all that good stuff so I had a little bit of fear for a couple of days and then I just had enough gumption to just go and take care of matters go to the table with the solution not the problem I guess that actually is similar to a question I wanted to ask right because you you talk a bunch about you know spin or wheeling and dealing self-preservation but also you're trying in a way to recover from that right so it's like how do you did you find yourself doing that and then did it feel how did that feel and did you catch yourself not doing it because it seems like if you're on this journey of recovery in that kind of a place it doesn't seem like a great place for that yeah, it's almost counter to what I really stood for, or wanted to, wanted to stand for, uh, you know, sort of moving forward in my life. But I also felt it was necessary. And this is a life and death situation. And I think that's where I had a lot of peace around that. There was, I had no, I wasn't grappling at all with the idea of doing that. It was just, no, you just have to, like, this is just kind of the way it is. And I'm wondering if I was in my worst way of the severe depression and anxiety where I would have just taken it and go, well, I guess it's my time, you know? Um, and I had already combated that. And um, so that wasn't going to make its way into the equation. And the, this idea of pulling it out as I needed it, that's where I felt, well, there's an exception around this. There's a, have you guys seen the movie Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze? Never. <laughs> it's like ultimate 80s. It is pretty good. It's, it's ultimate <laughs> 80s cheese. Once you've seen it once, you go, okay, you know, you're canceling meetings every time you see it on TV. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Anyhow, um, there's a scene in there where he, Patrick Swayze is um, a really sought after bouncer. He gets paid really well. He goes into cleanup clubs and he gets brought into this one club. And he's having a conversation with the staff when they're very well aware he's running the show. So he's having a conversation with his bouncers and he goes, uh, you know, he's telling them to be nice, you know, well, what if they do this? Well, just be nice. And he goes, so when do we not be nice? And he goes, you won't, I'll tell you. And you know, it was one of those things where, yeah, you know what you have to, yes, even though he's in your grill and he calls you a, you know, calls your mother a blank, blank, blank and all that good stuff. You be nice and you walk them out nicely and all that good stuff. It's almost like for everything, oh, except for this one. And then, but I'll let you know when. And so it kind of reminded me of that when I think about <laughs> this idea that it was really time to pull that out. Not to the point, and I said, okay, now I, now I can start working on a hustle in here. My hustle in prison was pretty feeble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed. Not that particular one, but... When we were in any lockdown and because during intake, you don't get rec privileges during the day. So if you're working and you're not allowed to in the first 60 days, but let's say your job is you don't have to actually do your job. You're allowed out of your cell, right? And it's a privilege. And, um, because I refuse to borrow money or, you know, or rent a TV and then owe them every two weeks and things like that. I read a lot. So my hustle was, I would say that, oh, I'm gone through my book so I could at least go to the library. So give me an opportunity to go outside. So there was that. Mm. So it's pretty <laughs> innocent in the big scheme yeah. of things. I feel like that is pretty innocent. <laughs> pretty innocent. <laughs> so there was that. And I say it now because I thought, well, if there is something where I'm trying to play, and even though I had four or five books going on in the cell at any given time, um, 
it felt like, well, I wasn't doing it to go get more books. I was doing it so I can get out of my cell. So there is an element of that. Well, and it's interesting because you earlier said that, you know, it's like, yeah, you can create spin easily. You were, you know, lying was a hard habit to break, you know, reading through some of my notes here. So it's kind of like, and then like it's almost like we're talking about addiction. Yeah. It's like this thing that you're trying to break. Like, is that like, it's as if you're talking about it from the perspective of like a relapse. Yeah. And so it's like, so, you know, you made that exception whatever that is in, in prison. But what about now, like day to day out in the world? Like, is that, you say it's a hard habit to break. Mm -hmm. Do you still do this? Not definitely not in the same manner, but I catch myself, I've caught myself lying to be interesting. So as an example, I'll tell I'll start sharing a story and I go, I got to give it some zhuzh. So I might embellish I might have, but I catch myself doing it too because I don't feel good about it. And what usually comes after to give me some peace and ease is going to that person and go, hey, just to let you know, I kind of went a little overboard on that. Hmm. So there is that. Um, so you're right. I liken it to an addiction um, as well. And um, it's something I need to be mindful of. But to be able to actually live and feel what it's like to not be that way and to see the results of how people are treating me, I could say something very different about my relationships that I couldn't say before. So I'd review my relationships, let's say as an example, and I could look at and write down all the names of the people in my life. There'd be hundreds of them, right? And for everyone, I could figure out something, well, I kind of, like there was a lot of that going on. And I can say, one, there's a lot less of that, and especially for the people that I've reconnected with. You know, and if I start going down that path, I might be a little bit light about the idea that I was like maybe going down a slippery slope, but I'll say, Hey, by the way, and sometimes it's in my head and I'll tell them it was in my head and this is what I was about to say, but I'm actually, that didn't happen, but this has happened. Right. Yeah. It's interesting though, because a lot of people probably do that. Right. And the difference is most people won't go back and actually correct or say like, Hey, I embellish this part of the story or yeah. whatever. And so it's like, in a lot of ways, you're probably living with a lot more honesty than most people do. Yeah. Has, has there been, um, I mean, obviously you're, you're going out, you're reaching out to these people, you know, and you're trying to patch up old relationships and, you know, mend certain things. Um, what's the stigma around, you know, having come out of prison now, you know, I mean, it was, so right. Cause there's gonna be a certain cloud of people outside of your inner circle who don't get those intimate conversations, right? And and there's going to be a certain stigma that that might precede you as you, you know, enter those conversations. Have, have you had to deal with that at all? Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, yes. So the, answer, the quick answer is yes. And I think of an example where um, a friend of mine that I went to high school with, not affected in this at all. Yeah. And... Um, I felt like there was this need to sell that I was something completely different than what he had witnessed or the, uh, his perception of who I was as a person, as opposed to this is something that happened. And when I I did a reflection on it and I thought to myself, I go, oh my goodness. Um, I didn't want to, you know, when I've ever had those feelings, well, it's really none of his business and things like that. Cause as soon as I start going down that path too, then, you know, I carry a level of arrogance that I just definitely don't wear well. 
but I just, you know, I'd answer quickly and then he just stopped communicating with me. So I won't, I won't reach out to him again for favor or, you know, maybe consider something different. He just feels that way. And he deserves to feel that way. And I wanted to, not that I, you know, I'm no one to let him know, by the way, you deserve to feel that way. He really does. No different than, although it's a smaller fraction of the victims that actually made the claim on the restitution order. When you read an impact statement that says he should be in jail forever. And I share that with somebody and they go, come on, like forever. And they go, well, that's how they feel. And I totally agree. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean it's right or wrong. It's almost, it, it, that's almost irrelevant. What is relevant is that they're hurt and, you know, and deeply. And this is how they feel they're going to get their restitution, you know? And the ones that I get a little, the individuals that I get a little more, not angry with, but I feel a little bit more, I'm not overly happy in the conversation are people who weren't involved at all, but I'm sharing my story, let's say as an example. And they hadn't known me before. And when they start going down that path, then I get a little bit, you yeah, know, sure. it's like, oh, really? No, stand for the victim. As did the judge, as did, you know, they're doing their job. You know, that when I use that term, you know, you win some, you lose some. Well, that's great that, you know, some of the victims did really well financially over the years with some of the stuff that I got them involved in, whether with my stuff or let's say I was representing opportunities. But it doesn't matter because even if it was only one-tenth or one-one-hundredth of what um, all the good stuff that happened, I, in my heart, not well, but in my heart, I made the choice to actually take something from them without being honest with them about it. This is, uh, you were going through the story of preparing your affairs, the arraignment, what it's like to go away, and you said that, you know, you um, were even at the point where you were trying to, you, you couldn't even pack a box, right? And you said that uh, you didn't want to ask anybody for help. And you referenced, or you said, because you were in my evil world of sin. And Jess and I both wrote down these notes at the same time because that was like, <laughs> like, that was like shivers, right? And it's interesting because you it felt like you kind of just like brushed through that. Like that's the, to me, when I was asking you earlier about pain and angst, like that's where that, that's kind of, not that I had anything in mind, that's kind of what I was thinking, right? And so, you know, you can talk about it somewhat nonchalantly, but like, is that spin? Or is that you like having made peace? And so I'm reading this, like Jess wrote this. She's like, I can't figure out if he's really this calm and has come to see it with peace or is he like floating up over himself and disconnecting or is this some example of you just being really good at storytelling? And oh, I don't think good. she means that as, as an accusation. Yeah. Right. But it's just, that's such a, a, a statement that was so impactful. Mm -hmm. And then, so yeah, can you speak to that? I can't speak to that situation specifically or that feeling or those mentions, but I can say that in conversations that I've had with people, um, from time to time, they're very curious as to why I'm at peace with the fact that I'm 56. Not only am I starting all over again, I'm really behind, you know, and I have an element of faith. 
So I have uh, I have a faith walk for starters, and there's some peace around that. Um, I'm involved in a community where there's a lot of support with people with addictions, and mine being food. There's some comfort in being able to share comfortably in those areas and actually hearing stories of others. They might not be exactly the same stories, but other stuff where they're entangled by whatever it is that they're being grabbed by. And in my particular case, because I did actually take that final leap to actually start being honest about things and seeing the results as almost being completely different than I thought they would turn out to be, it does create some ease for me. So there's no, for me, it's, I, it's not a um, idea of spin and throwing on a salesman's hat and things of that nature. It is truly the fact that I have ease. And that's not all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are times when stuff rears for myself when I thought I was completely over it or um, had dealt with it emotionally. And there's one thing in some of the self-work that I did, and I took this formal course called the Landmark Forum, which you may or may not be familiar with. And, you know, for those that are ever introduced to it, they have this thing, what would you like, you know, what is it that you want out of the possibility of this type of work? And one of them is freedom from regret and resentment. Still having regret and resentment is one thing, but to be free of it. So that took a lot of work. So a lot of these feelings and the way I talk are more a function of work I did well before turning myself in. Yeah. So, um, but that's a, it's a great question. Yeah. So you, yeah, it's, and so you, um, you said some days are not, or some days you're easier than others or something to that effect. So knowing that this conversation was coming, Mm -hmm. Is it, do you have to psych yourself up for it or anything? Are you going to go afterwards and be like exhausted or is this just you're, you are that at peace generally, or is it like, or, or yeah, where are you at? Uh, another great question. So I did not have to psych myself up for it. And in fact, when I looked on the schedule, I go, oh, we have our uh, podcast today, Cool. you know, cause I live and die by a schedule, you know, uh, as most of us do. So in that particular case, and then afterwards, it wouldn't be, oh boy, that one shot of bourbon's not going to cut it. I need another <laughs> one and I might even get high. <laughs> no, there's a lot less of that because in addition to having lived a world of extremes when it comes to emotions, both on, on both ends of the spectrum, of being very unhealthy for me, being hopped up and being excited about things is not good either because I, really I really miss things or I have. And a lot of it has to do with um, the possibility of healthy connection with individuals. So in a conversation, in the past, let's say as an example, this had all started and I hadn't actually let a little grass grow. And we have this conversation. And then I, there's a likelihood I would have been prepping for it because I got to control the narrative. I don't know how this is going to work, but I tell you there's going to be spin and all this good stuff that sort of comes out of it. But having experience the results of what it's like to be completely different and how it wasn't nearly as painful. And in fact, it was very, again, I'm still surprised sometimes of how gracious people are towards me. And I'll use, you know, you as an example, whether those feelings were deep or not, having approached both you and one of our former, uh, your former uh, staff members prior to going in and saying, Hey, look, this is what's gone on. And if that's not good for you to, for me to be around, well, so be it. 
Yeah. That wasn't an easy conversation to have. No. But I also had taken a few things for a test drive where I felt that it's going to go either way and so be it. But it took a lot of work to get to that juncture. And the same thing rang true after I was released. I came back and I said, look, is it still okay? And I felt that, yeah, it would still be okay. Yeah. As long as, of course, I don't play the game while I'm in here. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. No, and, and we said the same thing, right? Yeah. It's like, who are we to judge? But yeah, like, don't, don't, don't be dumb. Yeah. Right? Don't do it well, again. <laughs> now, you know, you know, I don't mean to stir the pot, but yes, I do. Were there, <laughs> were there, were there some people who were there to judge? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I asked because I know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there was, and I don't think we've even talked about this, to be honest, no. John and I, that is. And uh, yeah, there were two, there were two members that were, that wrote me on Slack and they were pretty, they, not pretty, that they were, they were furious when they found out. They said, we see that there's another John on Slack. What's going on here? Is he back? And just like link to all the articles you mentioned and just said that it's like he is a predator. He shouldn't be in the community. If he's here, I'm leaving and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, you are aware that the toxicity that you are spewing is far worse than anything that like, I've had conversations with this man. You should consider doing the same thing. I refuse. I will not talk to him. And we politely said like, Hey, you know what? You can, you can leave. And I don't think they expected that, right? I think they were they were bluffing and they didn't want to leave. And like, hey, this is how you're going to be. Then, you know, you don't need to be here, right? Mm -hmm. Well, and there's, you know, and and they they're even saying, well, don't you think you should let all the members know? You're like, well, that, that's a not legal and b not our place, um, uh, you know. Um, but it is interesting because everyone does actually love a redemption story, right? And 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 because we see ourselves in it so much, right? And uh, um, because none of us none of us are 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 clean from you know our own conscious of you know, things we've done. Um, but but yeah, it's interesting. There's just so much. Uh, I don't know. I've got this saying, you know, and and we work it into. Uh, it, it runs just about everything we do in marketing and brand wash. But you know, we got this. Thing, empathy unlocks, and I stole it from someone, but uh, but just how important it is to try to actually get in the mind uh, of of the people that you're trying to in, engage with and trying to you know and just understanding people as best you can. I, I think that is the uh, the ultimate level of influence is when you can actually truly understand and empathize with with other people. But um, we're we're kind of lacking that, and so and so, so so many levels. I mean, we're lacking that as humans. Hundred percent, yeah, hundred yeah. yeah. percent. You know, we're so quick to throw judgment to cast people as as something else, something other than us, and there's so little attempt at understanding. And um, it was, it was. Uh, I, I did get caught in the crossfire of that um, situation, and uh, so I was an observer, and uh, I was very proud of what what Workinizer did in that situation. Um, and, um, but it was also really interesting to see people decide like that person is bad and I'm going to campaign against that person. Right. And I was, that was disappointing. Mm. It's very disappointing. Cause I, and to your point, like we've all, we've all screwed up, right? We've mm -hmm. all done something wrong and made bad decisions. Like the only difference is that like, well, not even, I was just the, the only difference is that you got caught, but it's not even like the only difference is that you owned up to it. Ultimately, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So anyway, I would, 
That was kind of what I was asking about earlier on, to be honest, was, was just, you know, dealing with the, you know, some, some of the stigma that goes around yeah. it. Right. And, yeah. uh, and I do know, um, I do know a little bit about, you know, the parole process and stuff, just, just from stories from my dad and stuff. And, um, and he gets, to know, he got to know a lot of inmates and he, and he really liked a lot of the inmates and mm-hmm. he understands a lot of the challenges that they deal with in trying to get their life back together. And so a lot of them don't get their mm-hmm. lives back together mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um and uh and then it's and then it becomes this weird philosophical question of like well, what are we doing are we doing punishment are we doing rehabilitation or mm-hmm. are we doing either of them very well mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um yeah well probably neither yeah. of them very well <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I mean, like, that's a whole other conversation <laughs> <Yeah>. no <laughs> no 100 it's it's a big and, and which one should be like what? Mm-hmm. What is the purpose? Yeah. Is what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. What is the purpose, and are we accomplishing mm-hmm. that purpose? Right. right. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. John and I chatted a, chatted a bit about it when we first started chatting and chatted about the fact that for 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 to go to jail and to go through it, the idea of rehabilitation has to exist, or else what's the point? Yeah. Right. Like it, one can't exist without <clears> the other. <throat> so, and I think, and we chatted about. I think that the 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 reason maybe that you're are more at peace now or can have these conversations because the alternative was so much worse, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. potentially not going to jail and still being in this cycle potentially mm-hmm. could have been way worse mm-hmm. than what ended up happening. Right. So having that mindset is might be what makes it a little easier. But I think what Gabe was talking about there, so now we're going to talk about this, is that... <laughs> oh, no. Now we're down the rabbit hole. Is, <laughs> but I think is that whether or not the system is designed for it, mm-hmm. right? I think for John, perhaps the idea of rehabilitation was there. Not to put words in your mouth. You're right here. You can speak for yourself, <laughs> right? But I think really, the, mm-hmm. is that what the system was meant for? Or mm-hmm. is the system meant to punish? Like, are you asking me? <laughs> Cause no. It's, no, we'll talk about it later. Because <laughs> we could go to that, like, uh, but so I guess, John, like, I guess I'll put it over to you, John. You've been in the system. What mm-hmm. do you think? Do you think it's built to rehabilitate or do you think it's built that they just wanted to punish you? Mm-hmm. I think when these things are tabled, I think the intention is to do good, mm-hmm. whatever that looks like, even from the authority uh, standpoint. And, um, what it's built to do and what it's actually doing are maybe two different things. And, um, I, you know, being surrounded around inmates, there's something really cool about being able to manipulate a system, even with initiatives and things of that in nature. And, um, I'll give you an example. For some reason, people thought I was learned and schooled. You know, if you're going to take money, you obviously have degrees and things like, and that is not the case being a high school graduate. But, you know, being asked to do someone's homework. So as an example, they'll be in high school and I'd be quick to say, well, you know, I'd be more than happy to work with you, you know, so you can figure it out more in a tutoring role, but not to do your homework, but that's a hustle. You can actually make money doing that actually doing their homework for them and stuff like that. And I knew some of the guys that were doing it, but I didn't want to be part of that. And I slept well, (laughs) not just because of that, because it wasn't just that there was always something going on. There was always this hustle and nervousness and who's looking and manipulate. So there is that it is. And some do it because they don't want to be different to where they're considered different. 
And some do it, it's just in their nature as well, almost like an addiction. So from that standpoint, when these programs are put into place, there's never a consideration, or there, my experience is there's very little to no consideration as an inmate going, oh, I'm going to learn something from this, and it's going to be great. Those conversations <laughs> just do not happen, okay? <laughs> Especially when their correction plans are put into place and they have to take formal courses around it, right? Mm-hmm. Or things like, um, you know, I was put in here and, uh, you know, I was on a drug uh, like type charge and I have to go to AA. So, which just totally breaks the spirit of a 12th to get community being, you know, the main spiritual principle, uh, principle being anonymity, right? (laughs) Everybody knows you go. Um, I kind of laugh at that one, but, um, but they do it so that they can have an opportunity because after you do X number in the institution, if you're a minimum, you actually get to go to Drumheller or to an actual AA meeting as an inmate, you know, with guard watch and stuff like that. It's the same thing with church. If you go to X number, you attend X number of Sunday services, you can go to actually church and drum heller on a Sunday. Those type of things. We'll go back to the 12th step. You know, these are, these are programs that are just amazing. AA is an amazing program. However, if it's used for all the wrong reasons, you know, it's just a process. And then, you know, the system just kind of gets used to the fact that's just the way it is. And at what point do those that are facilitating this, let's say whether they're correction officers, teachers who come on board, do they get tired of being part of that game? And then they just go through the mechanics of actually running a course. And um, it's not that, I don't know if the system is so much that it's broke. I just think, you know, you know, can you do anything actually to do it? And is that inmate who's a repeat offender, he's in there, let's say, for his third or fourth bit, he goes in there to actually give himself a break because he's in a lot more trouble in the out than he is in the inside. You know, how do you put systems in place to actually mitigate some of that? I don't know. I, it, it's hard to say. It's, and then there are those that want a better chance at it. You know, like, surprisingly in minimum, there were, I think, four lifers that eventually got themselves into minimum. These are people who have taken lives. And I'm not talking a manslaughter charge. They purposely took lives. And three of the four I really liked. You know, I know that sounds crazy, but they also, are, you know, they need people to not so much give them a chance, but to be civil to them. One of them runs a like a um, self-development book club on Friday nights, to which I attended. Wasn't forced to. It's all voluntarily, so there wasn't a big attendance. Considering there's a hundred inmates in minimum, you know, only five show up. And but he, it was a real win when you saw a young guy go in there, first time offender. You know, um, kind of got caught up in the fact that his buddy had a nice car and cute girls around him and things like that. Got caught and uh, is doing time for it for a drug related offense. And his effort into considering he will never see anything outside of walls, the effort that he would put in to see that this guy has a fighting chance. Yeah. That's re- rehabilitation. Yeah. That I could go for every day and twice on Sundays. And for other inmates who take that on as well. This is the same guy, he's amazing. When he would be out really early making sure that no one was slipping on ice, you know, to walking to the bubble for our check-ins in the morning on the worst days of snow. 
he would say, and he truly meant this, he didn't just say it, but he'd make sure that the pathways from the parking lot for visitors was cleared up so that they wouldn't slip and break their neck. And I know truly in his heart, that's what he wanted to do. I don't think it's a cross he's bearing. I think this is just who he had become and maybe who he was when he wasn't hopped up on drugs. So my, the experience of me seeing rehabilitation would have been other inmates with other inmates. I remember a friend telling me, he's like, you know, I would, he was an actor and he's, he's like, I would way rather play the bad guy in movies than, than the good guy. The good guy can only be good, right? That's the, he can only do that where the, where the bad guy can be so nuanced, you know, like, and, and there's, there's been some really great movies out there where the, where the, the bad guy is only just barely bad. You know what I'm talking about? Right. And, and just like this beautiful nuance and, and, uh, and life is just so nuanced and people are so nuanced. Right. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, if, if the, the natural consequence we've set up a society when someone takes life deliberately, you, you know, we, we send them to prison and in some cases forever. Right. But is that the sum of who this person is, you know? And, um, and, and yeah, there's just some really interesting nuance there. Right. Likewise, you know, I think most people consider themselves the good guy in, in their own story. Um, but does that mean they're all good, right? But compared to somebody else, they're the bad guy. You know what I mean? Because it is so mm-hmm. nuanced. Oh, Who yeah. thinks they're good compared to somebody down the road, they're the bad guy. Totally. And everyone's right? the bad guy depending on who's telling your story, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting you say that. And a thought sort of came up, and this is relative to um, something Alex had mentioned, this idea of you know, where judgment comes into place and how quick we can be. And I've been that person, you know, where I get very little information and I've already told, I already in my mind know who exactly who you are. And it's, and if I'm thinking that way, it's usually not in good favor. I'm not thinking good things. And how limiting that is uh, from someone who really is an advocate for love. And that does not speak to that at all, you know, and, and tolerance you know, and an understanding and where forgiveness plays a part and all that stuff, right? It's funny when I've shared my story with people and I get this in my 12-step group as well, is when people think, oh my goodness, I'm not alone. And then sometimes a confessional, like people have shared stuff with me that they've never told anybody, stuff they would bring to the grave. And it's all, you know, it was almost like I, you know, not directly or on purpose had created a space for them to feel comfortably in sharing with somebody and they've been carrying it with them, you know? Yeah. And then there are others, let's say, where it's amazing how much, even though I give a lot of, you know, rope and space, how they can justify certain behaviors as well that are clearly and plainly not good ways of acting you know? And, um, so it's been an array of, uh, it's been really, it's been beautiful. I was going to say it's interesting. It's been beautiful. I have a question from a while back before we wrap up, unless there's anything else crazy, but the, when you were telling your story, you spoke about the one individual that was part of the turning point story and you referred to him as a bit of a father figure. What's the relationship with that man now? I have not been in contact with him since I've been out. I asked 
the the police officer who serves as the general manager for the Colts now, my friend uh, Paul, I asked him how Keith was doing, and because Keith can't work anymore or give that time, and he said he's doing okay, all things considered, but he's been ill for years, and uh, I haven't reached out to him because there is this little thing of guilt, and is that a heavy, does that become a heavy story? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what stopped me from actually reaching out to him. That's a really good question. <laughs> That'll be on part two after, uh, <laughs> after you reach out to him. Well, and to be honest, that's it. I almost wonder if we should consider a part two in a way because um, honestly, it's a, we talk a lot about in this thing how we, we, royal we people, are more than their one decision. Mm-hmm. And we spent this whole time talking about this one well, series maybe, of decisions. Yeah. And I just wonder what that means, right? Because to anybody who doesn't know John, this is John. Mm -hmm. And so it's like we're saying you're more than one decision, but are we, did this conversation do anything to like make that true? Yeah. Right? 100%. Because I think that like the next, I would love to come back because I think the next question is like, what do you do next? Right? Like, where do you go from here? Because mm. I think we could do a whole other two-hour chat on what's next. What do the mm-hmm. next 30 years look like, mm-hmm. in essence? That's, that's, that's 87. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 87. You'll make it. <laughs> well, it's, it's super, super interesting because, because I think a, a what uh, I think there might be a lot of people who are in a situation a you know, bad situation, likely of their own making, that they are one decision, maybe confession, maybe something, you know, mm-hmm. to get themselves out of, but they're so terrified of what lies on the other side of that decision mm-hmm. that prevents them from doing that. So that, you know, this would be a really interesting follow-up, right? Yeah. Just, mm-hmm. just hey, you know, there's there's been this light on the other side of going to this that dark space of, mm-hmm. of confession and, and uh, turning myself in, mm-hmm. but look at all the light that has come in my life, you know, as a result of that and, mm-hmm. and where you're going for that. That'd be a really interesting follow-up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's definitely, there's definitely more to this, John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't getting the, where were you on the night of, but I'll get it in the next one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So I think really, uh, before we wrap up, you know, a good thing to hit might be just Ultimately, like John, how lucky I think that we are as the work nicer community to, to have you a part of it. Um, and to anybody who might hear this, you know, maybe don't be so quick to judge based on an article that you read on the internet or some hearsay or some rumor. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. That's very, very kind. Jess wrote thank it. You. Thanks, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and with that, I think that wraps episode three. And four and maybe five. And we'll we'll probably chop it up. <laughs> or three ABC. Yeah. yeah. Or part of three uh, yeah. of the Work in Progress podcast. I think uh, thank you, John, for being here and explaining how you and your life is a work in progress, much like the rest of us around the table. And uh, look forward to the next one. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for John. taking the time to have me as well. Yeah, Appreciate thank it. You. Thanks, for Thanks for listening to this episode of the Work in Progress podcast, hosted by Gabe Kane and Alex Budisi, featuring special guests John Laboon and Sean Parker. Listen to this podcast and more at worknicer.com. No one succeeds alone.
<laughs> <laughs> you say it again. Goodbye forever. <laughs>